Hey guys, welcome to episode 73 of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we are finally almost all better. So here we're back for your listening pleasure. I am here, guys. I am back and I am ready to do this episode. I know. It was a little weird last week without you being there. So it was hard for me. It was probably hard for all the listeners. So John, welcome back. Well, thank you very much. You know, but it is hard. <laughs> I give you credit that you did the show by yourself. Because um, I know it's hard to like kind of bounce things off yourself because it's like, what the hell? But it's okay. Yeah, no, there was actually there was no bouncing going on yes, oh, uh, last oh. two weeks ago. <laughs> True. So we're glad that you're back. And thank you for everyone who reached out to us and asked if we were okay or kept checking on us. It's a weird time to be sick because obviously anxieties take over, but we're glad we're on the mend and we're back here for you guys. This is going to be a two-part episode because this is a pretty big case and... What we're going to do, because we do have some extra time on our hands now, especially because I'm doing virtual teaching from home, is that we're going to release the second part next week. So there is going to be no like week off, weekend off for us. So you're going to get three weeks of True Crime Couple in a row. I mean, you guys deserve it because if if you're obviously most of us are in the same situation, so we're all home. So right. And we can spend the time together, which is good. Kind of needed. Yes. So before I begin, I'd like to acknowledge our primary source for the podcast. This is a book that literally came out this month. It was written by Peter Howes and Carol Ann Lee. Howes was actually the chief inspector on the case, and this is the first time that he's worked with a writer. He always wanted to respect the family that was victimized, um, but he decided to choose to work with Lee because she has a wonderful reputation, um, not just with writing, but also with her research and validity in her writing as well. So we will source this book, The Pottery Cottage Massacre, in the show notes, as well as the other sources we used, like we always do, because we like being really transparent about that. But of course, I'm not going to include every single detail from the book, because we do want our listeners to go out and buy it if they're interested in it, because it is a wonderful read. It's available on Kindle and audiobook. So if you're interested in this case, it's definitely something that can consume your time while you have it. I agree. I agree. I didn't read it. Well, no, John knows nothing about this case, as as per usual. Let's let's clarify. I did not read it, but I will admit, uh, Kay read that book up and down. So, yeah, I'm excited. As soon as it came out, I bought it. So, I think you're going to really like this case. I'm excited. And everyone's along for the ride with you. Let's do it. So, in the tragic case we're discussing today, a violent and desperate man fought his way to freedom by escaping imprisonment in the winter of 1977. He then took shelter in a nearby estate, where he held a family who lived there, captive for 55 hours. The result of this hostage situation continues to haunt the town of Eastmore in Derbyshire, England to this day, as it ends in a terrible tragedy, known as the Pottery Cottage Massacre. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. The Hughes family resided in Preston in South Lancashire. They worked, as most families in Preston did, as weavers in the cotton factories built up by the Industrial Revolution, which started in England. The Hughes family were hardworking and strict Roman Catholic. 
Eventually, the men of the family began working in decorating and upholstery, which really is what we know today as home renovations. Billy Hughes's father was born in 1924. At the age of 15, he left his job as a bobbing weaver at the same factory that his entire family had worked in to join the British Army. It was September of 1939, and England had just declared war on Nazi Germany. Thomas Hughes, like thousands of others, lied about his age so he could go off and fight for the Allies. After he survived the war, Thomas Hughes returned to England and began as a painter's apprentice. Shortly after, he married a woman in 1946 named May, who worked at the factory in Preston, as he once had. In August of the same year, their oldest child was born, William Thomas Hughes. After Billy, as they would call him, they had five other children, one girl and four more boys. Things were financially difficult for the family, and Thomas chose to re-enlist in the army. Although this would mean the family would have to move around, it meant that they would have more money. The Hughes family was stationed in Germany for three years, then in Essex, and finally in Hong Kong. Thomas went first to Hong Kong, and then his family joined him after a month-long trip by boat. Because of his rank, the Hughes family received a large bungalow and grounds to play on. They even had a servant to tend to them. Usually in cases where perpetrator committed acts of extreme violence, like we will see, we can trace their rageful tendencies back to their childhood. However, in this case, we just can't do that. Even by his own testimony, uh, Billy Hughes admits that his father was strict, but that he had a really loving relationship with him, that his father had been supportive throughout his entire life, even when, as you're going to see, he messes up a lot and that his mother was kind-hearted and loving woman who he always regretted disappointing. So his family life is pretty good. I mean, there's nothing bad to report there. Yes, they're moving around a lot. Yeah. But I mean, there's so many kids that go through that, and it's not always bad. Right, and they do seem to have like a really supportive family, but there's also a lot of children, so it's not like they didn't always have you know, kids their own age to play with because the children are all really close in age, and they're actually all really close to each other. Right. Eventually, the family needs to leave Hong Kong. The reason they left is undisclosed, but rumors follow them home that Thomas had crashed an army vehicle while drunk one night in 1958. The Hughes family came back to Preston at just the right time. Preston was being redesigned by urban planners, which was the perfect time for a decorator slash renovator to be seeking employment, and that's the skill that Thomas had. By the time the family returns, Billy Hughes is 12 years old. He is described as having light hair and piercing blue eyes. He received poor marks at school and is cited as being defiant and hostile. It seems that this attitude was kind of always present for Hughes and not something that was triggered by an event that happened. Okay. Like he was just always kind of ready to fight. And when questioned about this, he's going to say that it's because... While he was in school, he was teased relentlessly about his height. And he was really small for his age. Um, he would only grow to be 5'4". So he was a smaller guy, and he felt like, I guess, he had to be scrappy in order to kind of... Um, Make up for the disadvantaged height? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I see that. I mean, you know, that's it normal. Is, it is what it is. But I mean, I don't think that's like some major thing that one has to overcome being slightly shorter than other people. Sometimes it's a good thing. 
Yeah. Yeah, being short is good, just like sometimes tall is being good or bad. So those who knew him said that he was obsessed with never backing down and never stopping until he won a fight. On top of these pressures at school, his parents, who both worked... Now, don't forget, this is a really big family. So there's six kids and there's two of them. So it's a family of eight. Both parents had to work to just have make enough money for food for the family. So because they're working all the time, Hughes is put in a position of control. Like he has to take care of his younger siblings before and after school. So he resented the fact that he had to complete these tasks and his parents gave him too much responsibility, he thought. So his resentment manifested itself into small acts of rebellion through the committing of petty crimes, thus beginning his extensively long criminal record. I mean, I'm sure that's difficult. If you have multiple siblings that you feel that you're taking care of them and that the parents should be but aren't, you know, because they're out doing things like working and stuff, but... I could see that being hard, especially like if you're trying to be a kid, like in your own right. You know what I mean? Right. Like you, you're trying to have a childhood, but you feel like you can't. You have to grow up quicker because you got to take care of your siblings, your brothers and your sisters. Right. And that's the burden, especially during these times but in really big families that would fall on the older, the oldest sibling was kind of like to take care of everybody. But at the same time, it's not like his parents are going out and doing things or like doing bad things like going out and drinking or like spending the money gambling. I mean, they were really just trying to work for their family. So there's arguments for both sides. I oh, yeah. feel absolutely. It's hard to relate to because I'm an only child. So I have no idea what that was what that would yeah. be like. But I'm sure it wouldn't be fun. I was given the responsibility of just, you know, getting my sister ready for school in the morning. So there's some pretty awful family photos she has of her <laughs> pigtails being like not even and so I do apologize. I mean, that's actually pretty funny. <laughs> so that was my small yeah, responsibility. that's actually funny. <laughs> so by the age of 15, he had already left school and was on two years probation for theft. Not a good way to start out your teenage years. His father set him up with a few apprenticeships, but he was let go from two because he simply just didn't show up. Finally, his father set him up as a trainee decorator with his own company. However, his father's boss had to let Billy go because he was caught stealing supplies and a purse. So, I mean, your father kind of goes out on a limb here to help you. And he basically sets up three apprenticeships and you've screwed up all three. Yeah, I mean, look, there's there's people like that. You know, there's people that, you know, even you could lead them right to the water. But they, you know, it's just it's hard, man. I don't know. I can't explain it. But I know so many people like that. And it's just the way that they are. I know. It's hard I mean, to change, especially if you have like a criminal record where you're stealing. Sometimes people have like a habit of stealing because it's like, it's like their rush. To yeah. yeah. Well, I would say at the age of 15, um, well, school's not for everybody, right? So it's different back then when um, kind of people, a lot of people didn't finish high school. And obviously secondary school is something that's not even thought of by most families, especially those who struggle for money. So school isn't, for everybody but then i guess that's what his father was trying to say was if you're going to stop school then you got to work so he's trying to teach his son some responsibility but it just seems like that criminal bug has kind of bit him pretty early in life and he seems to really fall into that quite easily a lot more easily than working yeah i mean look every i feel like every parent have has had that conversation with their child before 
I mean, I know my dad had that conversation with me. You know, it's like you gotta, you know, you gotta pick your path. You know, are you gonna stay in school and and be, you know, get proficient in something or or learn something? You gotta choose a path. So, I mean, I mean, I, the father tried. So, I mean, it's what you make it at that point. Exactly. So he later tried to be a railroad apprentice, but he was caught breaking into a cleaner shop and a private residence all in one night. So he was kind of having like his night of crime. When he was caught for the second time, so when he was breaking into the private residence, he was able to run away from the police officer. And when he ran away, he ran away to the railroad station where he had his apprenticeship. There, he grabbed a piece of iron and smashed in 17 train windows. And when he was caught for the third time by um, a police officer that was there, like, just kind of being, like, on guard at the railroad station, um, he asked Hughes why he smashed the windows, and he said he was mad because he'd been caught. So on top of, like, being into, like, criminal activity, he definitely has a violent streak. We can see at a young age that Hughes had already been afforded many opportunities in his life, but he just can't seem to get out of his own way. For that night of craziness, he's given another two years of probation, but violates it months later when he's charged with pickpocketing. Three counts of it. After these incidents, he was committed to a school for young boys. These schools that are set up throughout England are private entities, and they're not run by the counties. They were focused on social re-education through discipline and love. The workers at the school commented that Hughes came from a poor family. Without knowing it, he may have been subject to emotional neglect. Kind of like what you were alluding to by the fact that he had to grow up at such a young age and be responsible and step into um, a role that he probably wasn't ready to fill yet. Right. Now, I don't know if the school is as bright and cheery as they made it sound when they talked about it. I mean, we have to think it's a privately it's privately owned, so its records don't need to be given out. But Hughes does run away from the school five times during his stay. So at the very least, the school was a failure of early intervention for Billy Hughes. And at worst, it may have added to the aggression of this young boy, dependent on how he was treated when he was there, by not just the people who work at the school, but the charges of the school. See, it's it's a it's a little bizarre because I feel like you could have you, this could either go two ways. Let's just say during his first crime that he was convicted of, right? You could either try to facilitate some t- sort of rehabilitation, right? Or you can charge him heavily right in the beginning, just to stop it right there. Because think about it: if you put this kid on probation constantly, time after time. What does that do? Nothing. That just shows that he can get away with it. But then the flip side to that is if you charge him harshly and you, I guess, you know, not in jail, but you, you know what I mean. You overpunish. Then you overpunish. So it's like, I wonder what would happen, though, if it did go that way where it was very serious from the beginning the first time if he would have repeated. Right. And I think that's the thing, too, is they really want to go easy on first time or young offenders because you don't want to overpunish them because... You don't want them to get involved in what becomes known as like the cycle of prison over and over again. But then at the same time, some people do need to be taught a lesson. So Hughes was on four years of probation before he was put into this school. So it does show us that he totally wasn't thinking of rehabilitation because he did run away from the school five times. So 
you know, yeah. but then there there also is the fact that maybe the school wasn't that great either. I would say so, especially because it's privately owned. So they're allowed to do a lot of things that the state may not think is appropriate. Right. So he was released from the school in 1963, but he was placed right back in after he committed another three robberies. This time he was sent to a different school, one for repeat offenders called Borstow. It housed 6,000 students ages 16 to 21. And this institution was set up to rehabilitate and train its charges. This does sound wonderful, but the truth is that it is also the end of the line for young adults. So the kids that are there know that they're repeat offenders and that they're also bordering on being of the age where they should have, they like they could be or should have been charged as adults. So like the students there that are 21, they've obviously served a lot of time there. So like they're there for like, over three years, but they know that if they commit a crime after they leave Borstal, that most likely their next step is prison. So it's kind of an end of the road for these guys. So they're either going to rehabilitate or they're just going to become criminals for life once they leave Borstal. At this school, it was mandatory for Hughes to participate in sports and education. If any offenses were made at the school, the charges could be placed in solitary confinement. When Hughes was evaluated in the school, they stated that he was immature and a nuisance. They suggested that he take courses in welding. And during the welding program, it was said that he was immature as well and unable to control himself. His cellmate at the time said the boy seemed to have an obsession with knives, which will totally come up later, and that he was very dark and often talked of killing people, which is what eventually will take place. He had failed welding and began weightlifting. This seemed to change his mood and help dissipate his anger. It kind of gave him something to do, and it was a way to burn off like physical esteem. But it also is going to build his self-esteem because obviously he feels a little insecure about his height. So the fact that he's going to be physically fit is something that's going to like really be a positive boost for the boy, which is good. It was then that he began to change his trade to painting and decorating. And he was doing really well at this. While spending time in these rehabilitation schools, Hughes' mother had stopped talking to him and claimed to have disowned him. However, this change in behavior and new affinity towards the same trade as his father made his parents happy and hopeful for the first time in a very long time. When Hughes was released in October of 1965, his parents let him come home and live with them. However, he began drinking rather heavily and had become disruptive. Within a month, he had to leave and start staying with friends. After he moved in with friends, he continued to drink heavily. He continued to steal, but this time he added breaking and entering to his list of offenses. For these charges, and trust me, they were several, Hughes was sentenced to 18 months in prison. So this is going to be his first prison stint. One very interesting true crime fact here is that he was held at the same jail awaiting trial as Ian Brady and Myra Henley, those who were arrested for the Moore murders in October of 1965. So he was in very close proximity to Ian Brady, who is very synonymous in the true crime world that's pretty cool yeah well i mean like it's a cool true crime fact oh yeah well that's what i mean true crime fact very cool no i mean i I know at first when i wrote this i was like oh one cool thing but then i was like oh i just maybe probably shouldn't use that word but you just went ahead and added that so i (laughs) 
at this point, I think you and the audience know, our true crime fans, yes. that I don't always say the right things. No, it's not that it wasn't um, the right thing. It was just like, it is a cool fact. But, but it is, like, it's definitely a cool fact. I just fact. want everyone to know we're still being remaining sensitive. Absolutely. Yes. But I'm saying that is a cool fact to know. I wouldn't have known that. Yes. So his first stint in prison was at HMP Walton in Liverpool, Her Majesty's Prison. There, he had satisfactory conduct and was discharged in June of 1967. But after only eight weeks of being free, Hughes stole copper pipes and was sentenced to another two years in prison. He was only out for six weeks. I mean, it goes to what we were saying. It's just like he can't control himself. No, he definitely has impulse control issues. I completely agree with that. And um, the impulses are even made even worse when he lowers his inhibitions by drinking. So, so very much. (laughs) (laughs) So for those two years, the man was a mess. He was described as depressed and pathetic. He did not write his parents at all. He told others he had no need to improve his life. The only solace he found was visiting the Roman Catholic Church Chapel. When he was finally released, he moved in with his uncle. Three days after his release, he was caught for breaking into a building. The officers asked him to put his hands up. Hughes, putting his hands in the air, walked towards the officer, like he was about to surrender. But just when he got close enough to the man, he attacked him brutally and assaulted the officer. And for that, he was sentenced to six months. Two things. Mm -hmm. First thing, he's definitely escalating. Yes. Um, That's the first thing. Second thing is you would think that for assaulting an officer, that he would get more than just six months. But that's just me. Well, I think think it has to do with whether or not the officer pressed charges. So I would assume that the officer didn't press charges and that that was for the breaking and entering. Mm, Okay. So... I'm betting that it would be no surprise to you guys if I said that two months after his release from that six-month stint that he got arrested again. But this time he was able to escape from the jail that he was being held in into his trial. So he escaped from prison. Well, it was a, it was a holding cell. When he fled the jail, he returned to Preston. There he was actually able to find work and live with friends. But finally, the law caught up with him one night when he was driving recklessly through the neighborhood under the influence. When the officer pulled him over, he realized that he had Billy Hughes on his hand. I mean, the police definitely knew who he was by this time. Hughes, still on the run from escaping from jail, was arrested without a fuss, which is good. I'm sure the officer was grateful for that because everyone knew about what happened the last time. He pled guilty and was given four-month sentence and 12-month suspension of his driver's license. While Hughes was serving these four months, he had a court appearance for unrelated charges. He had a girlfriend at the time that chose to break things off with him. I couldn't imagine why. Yeah, really. I mean, <laughs> he's good a, choice. He's a charmer. Well, they did say that Billy always really did have a way with women, that he was really good-looking, and that he was a charmer, but... I mean, he's he's a petty criminal, so I can imagine that he is. So she broke things off because, once again, he was in jail, and she had decided to just stop talking to him. Um, we do know at this time that she was pregnant with his child. So to get her attention, or as a grand gesture of some sort, he, in the middle of the judge speaking during court, pulled a razor blade out and cut his neck and wrists. 
He had to be taken to the hospital, of course. Um, His wounds were, for the most part, superficial, but he did need five stitches in his neck and four stitches on each wrist. So did he try? To, so I'm guessing he tried to kill himself. Yeah, the doctor commented to the prison that um, Hughes was hysterical when this event took place, but it was really clear that even though the event was premeditated, that it was not necessarily done with determination. Okay. So like it was kind of more of just like a, a tension grabber. Yeah, Hughes is going to. I'm sure it's going to be no surprise. Become. We're going to know that he's very abusive as a boyfriend, a husband, whatever. Um, And what he likes to do is either threaten violence against the woman or threaten that he's going to kill himself. So most likely he had said, if you leave me, I'll kill myself. And this was kind of like a... His way of showing that he means business? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, my God. And that's just, of course, you know, as we know, like he's a big abuser, but he also uses coercive control with all of the women that he's going to date. So despite the severity of this issue, Hughes never received psychological evaluation. He was simply only placed on the possible escape list, which is an interesting list to put him on after a attempted suicide in open court. So what are you going to do? Once Hughes was released from prison, he actually traveled hundreds of miles to move to the same town as the girlfriend who had broken up with him, who was pregnant with his child. While he was in prison, she had given birth to this child, and he was somehow able to convince her to be with him again. But this did not last, as he was arrested in November of 1969 for a drunk and disorderly behavior and another assault of a police officer. He was sentenced to three years, and that was the last time he heard from or saw that woman and his firstborn child. During these three years, Hughes continued a rigorous body training regimen. He was well-known gambler by the accounts of the corrections officers, and it was during this time that he got all of his prison tattoos. Hughes was the recipient of the ever-popular love and hate tattoo on his fingers. Oh, no. Well, I mean, it's 1969, so that's like when it first started happening. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Just the whole prison tattoo thing gives me, like, the eebie-jeebies. Just because it's, like, number one... Not the cleanest environment. It's not clean. Yeah. Two, who's really doing this tattooing? And are they actually good? Like, is it going to, like, look like a child did it? Or is it actually going to look like a real tattoo? Well, his tattoos did look real. His love and hate was there. Um, He had the name Diane on his chest. I'm not really too sure who Diane was, if it was maybe that woman or the child. We don't know. Um, He had an eagle also on his chest and on his back, a very large snake with fangs that dripped blood. And of course, he had little like smaller tattoos all over his body and they included um, anchors, stars, crosses and a compass in case he loses his way. Yeah. All right. I mean, those are very, like... uh... He's totally lost, so I mean, I can understand his need for direction at this time. (laughs) So he was released in 1971 from prison, and he was placed on parole. He moved to Blackpool, which is a town on the coast about 28 miles west of where he was from in Preston. He was working with his father, and shortly after being released, met a woman named Jean. It is established that he's going to be staying in Jean's house, 
So Jean is a single mother. Um, She has a five-year-old daughter, and she's really just trying to make ends meet. She had in the past been in trouble with the law, and she was trying to work really hard at staying on the right path and taking care of her five-year-old daughter. So she decided to take on a boarder. And because, you know, she had kind of run in the same circles as people who had been to prison, she did understand how hard it was when you're trying to get back on your feet once you leave prison. So she agreed to allow Billy Hughes to be a boarder in her apartment, um, which I do think is an interesting situation because even if you've been to jail, you do kind of have some need to protect your child. I just don't know. Like, it's a weird choice that this woman made to allow somebody who just got out of prison to stay in their house with her five-year-old daughter. A normal mother probably wouldn't make that call. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I'm just saying because, and nothing, hey, look, there's people who have been convicted, gone to prison and changed a whole life around. So I'm not here to place, you know, judgment and to look at anyone differently. No, not at all. It's just, but, you don't know who this person is <laughs> right. and you're agreeing for right. them to stay in your mention, house. Not to mention he steals. And he gets drunk and he does dumb shit. Um, yeah, it's pretty so violent. This child around, yeah, like having this child around, like as a mother or a father or whatever, well, obviously as a father, I wouldn't want that. Well, I mean, I think that Gene making this decision is going to allow us to understand some of the actions that she has later on. Um, okay, that's fair. So Gene was a beautiful, petite girl with bleach blonde hair and... The first time that Hughes met her, he just couldn't resist her. And the feeling was mutual with Jean and Billy. Um, Hughes had always been really good at charming women. Like I said before, he was, by all accounts, people thought that he was good looking and that he would flatter and spoil a girl when he first met her. And this is the case with most abusers. And then slowly he would begin to change. Little by little, until finally she looked back and realized that she was too deep into the possessiveness and the jealousy, and she was stuck in the relationship. And that was no exception with Jean. Um, The couple met, they went to a bar together, and the first night they ended up sleeping together. And from that point on, there was like an infatuation between the two of them. So, like we said, Jean was a divorced woman. She had a five-year-old daughter named Tracy. And she had been to prison a few times herself. So in this desperate situation, she is going to see maybe a way out of the struggle by um, entering into a relationship with Billy Hughes, who seemed like a great guy when she first met him. But just like he was with all of the other women he had been with in his life, Hughes began emotionally and physically abusing Jean. He threatened constantly that if she ever thought about leaving, that he would either kill himself or her. Within six weeks of the couple being together, Jean became pregnant. Honestly, I think I'm more surprised that Billy didn't go to prison in those six weeks than I am that Jean's pregnant. As sad as that is to say, I 100% agree with you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so things actually seemed to be going well until problems began at work. At the time, Hughes was working with his father as a decorator. His father recently became employed by a large company. And as a favor to him, his father, and his uncle, Hughes was hired. However, there were several times that Billy Hughes just didn't show up to work. And even though he was a trained painter, and he was actually pretty talented, he was sullen and lazy when he actually did show up. 
When his father would confront him about his behavior, he would fly into a rage and make a scene at the job site. What does your aunt Fran always say? Come on, don't make a scene. <laughs> That's her like famous line. Yeah. It's my fun. It's my favorite thing. It's, it's great. It is. Don't great. make a scene. Within weeks, he was let go from the company after he was caught stealing money from the actual office. So this was another letdown to his father. I mean, this is just happening over and over and over again. I mean, it's not even like a shock anymore. No. <laughs> as you were telling, as you're telling the story, it's just uh it's just kind of like it's never going to end with him. Like it's just no. going to continue to get worse. It's crazy. So things also turned sour at home. As Jean became pregnant, Hughes began to hit her. Over the five years that he's with Jean, he would fracture her arm, break her ribs, and perforate her eardrum. But those are only the injuries that she sought medical attention for. Soon, his attention would turn on Jean's five-year-old daughter, Tracy. Because of his outbursts and the way that he would beat her mother, Tracy was never fond of Hughes. She was actually quite terrified of him. When he was around, she would be stricken with silence and would not want to go near him, preferably staying by her mother's side. And this infuriated Hughes. He wanted the young girl to like him. So when she would not talk to him or be near him, he would fly into a rage, oftentimes harming the child. So he just couldn't accept that someone didn't like him. Well, you know, maybe it has something to do with his character. You know what I mean? I'm going to go with yeah. So in May of 1972, others got involved in the domestic dispute, and the police were called. Hughes was charged with the assault of the young girl. In court, Billy said that he only slapped the girl when she had grown hysterical. He blamed the incident on Jean. He said that she never disciplines her daughter, and so that all the discipline is left up to him, and he was only trying to raise the girl right. However, Hughes' story did not match up to the injuries reported by the doctors. The five-year-old had fractured ribs. Oh, wow. I mean, that's pretty serious. I mean, that's not just a, it's not a, slap, in the a face. slap in the face. Yeah, which is inappropriate in itself. You know? It's true. Whether it's your child or not. So he was sentenced to six months in prison for what had happened to Tracy. However, during an appeal... A month later, Jean, who was now nine months pregnant with his daughter, she defends Hughes's actions. She said that the whole incident was her fault and that she and Tracy want him home as soon as possible. So, see, um, I think that gives us a little bit of an understanding of why that decision to allow the border in kind of was there. She's not really making the best choices for her daughter. Obviously. <laughs> I mean, obviously she's in an abusive relationship that involves some levels of coercive control. And it's really hard to break out of those relationships. But her daughter is now in harm's way. And that's why when you were, let's just take being in jail, you know, her past out of the equation. That's why when a single mother dates, it's incredibly important that they consider not only themselves, but their children. Right. It's or a single father, too. Or a single father. Both. It doesn't matter. You need to consider the children that you have that you're entrusted to take, you know, that you're taking care of them. Oh, yeah. It's not just someone being in a relationship with you. It's yeah, your children as well. Yeah, there's children involved. Really, at w no matter what the age of the children are. Yeah, absolutely. So, because of Jean's statement and um, feelings of wanting... Hughes home. He was released from his sentence early 
and sent back to live with Jean and Tracy in Blackpool. When he returned, he went back to his old behavior quite quickly. Not even the birth of his daughter in August of 1972 stopped the beatings that Jean and her daughter would receive. He would fly into a rage, usually after he would drink, attack them physically or verbally, and then beg for forgiveness, promising that he would change. Jean always took him back, succumbing to that all-too-common cycle of abuse. There was one terrifying incident in which Hughes had wanted breakfast, but Jean was feeding the newborn baby. He began beating her. She was able to put the baby in the crib and she fled the house. But when she turned back to look up at the flat windows, she saw Hughes. He was out the window holding his infant daughter by her neck. Out the window? Out the window. Oh, this guy's horrible. Yeah. And he was yelling to Jean that if she didn't come back, that he was going to drop her. And you know the worst part about that? Yeah. Is that I feel like he probably would. And that's the worst part about the whole thing is that yeah. your child and you're using it as a tactic to get your like your wife girlfriend to, wife yeah. to come back. Yeah, it's so sick because he probably would do it. Well, I think that that shows that um, there's a callousness to this man and that there is no line that he's unable to cross. And to be honest, that's the scariest human being. <laughs> yeah. So, of course, to protect her daughter, Nicola, her name is. Um, She's going to run back inside the house as quickly as she can. So at this time, he's working demolition. He had met a man on the job site that he would bring around his apartment. Hughes and his work buddy would drink at a local pub that was near the flat that he shared with Jean. Jean and her married friend Alice would often join the men for a drink. Alice began having an affair with Hughes' workmate. So this will all become important later, but just know Alice is Jean's best friend. And that there's now like, they're kind of like double dating, but the one's having an affair. Alice is having an affair and her husband with Billy Hughes's friend. Okay. Basically. And they all would, they would drink pretty heavily together. And this is when um, drugs is going to enter the picture. So um, there's going to be some cocaine usage and pills. During the same summer, Hughes and his younger brother, Alan, are going to get into a pretty serious altercation with police. The Blackpool police were notified about a hit-and-run incident that had taken place. When they heard the area in which the incident happened, the officers noted that it was near um, a drug house. So they figured the drug house might have something to do with this hit-and-run incident. So they decided to head in the direction of the house and that they would go from there. As they were driving towards the house, they saw two men walking into the direction of the house. And they were walking like they were in a daze. So the officers stopped the men, who were Billy Hughes and his brother, Alan Hughes. And they noticed that both men had blood on their clothes. Not usually a good sign. Not a good sign. Walking towards a drug house in a daze with blood on your clothes. Not where you want to be. No, not at all. (laughs) So it was clear that the men were high. So the police asked them what they were doing. They said that they had parked a few blocks away and they were walking to just go visit some friends. The officers asked the men to take them to their car, which was more like four blocks away. Once they were there, they searched the vehicle. In the car boot, they found a very large amount of prescription drugs. Almost like they had just robbed a pharmacy or something. 
Oh, my God. So while they were searching the vehicle, four other police officers showed up on the scene. And once the drugs were found, the brothers were informed that they were arrested. So where we left off, the Hughes brothers um, have just been arrested. The police have caught them. They are suspected of not just a hit and run now, also um, the robbery of a pharmacy and possession of a lot of drugs. And they're suspected of being high. So the two brothers are placed under arrest by six police officers. Alan Hughes refused to enter the police van. He punched an officer and then ran away through a residential yard. He was quickly detained by another officer and locked inside the van. As he was placed in the van, Hughes made his own escape attempt, and he ran away. He was tackled to the ground pretty quickly, and as the officers were struggling to cuff Billy Hughes, Alan Hughes smashed the lock from inside the van and broke the rear window. From there, he was able to escape. One of the officers that was trying to subdue Billy Hughes um, went to stop Alan from jumping out of the van. But as the man approached, Alan jumped down from the van while simultaneously kicking the officer in the face. Kicking him in the face. In the face. I mean, this is getting insane. And now he has he has family members in this now, like in this well, weird life Well, all now. of the Hughes brothers, all of them have had time spent in jail at this point. That's very interesting. Yeah, it's sad. The poor, poor mother and father, really. So this is when it broke into an all-out brawl between the Hughes brothers and six police officers. It was six against two, but the brothers were really holding their own here. I mean, I will also mention that they probably had a crazy amount of drugs in their system, but some of the officers were former rugby players, and they were like 6'4", and don't forget, Billy Hughes is only 5'4". I think it's the yeah. drugs that are holding their own more than them. But, but these are two violent men, so, you know. And they're probably trying to be cautious, too. I'm, I'm meaning, meaning the police officers. Yeah, they don't want to use too much force because there are six of them there. So at one point, Hughes tried to gouge out the eyes of one officer and bit the arm of another officer, like, really hard. His teeth went through the police uniform and drew lots of blood. Later in a report, the officers would say that no matter what they did, the brothers just kept coming back at them. One of the officers kicked Billy Hughes as hard as he could in the head, and he just got up like nothing was happening. Eventually, the brothers are subdued and they're taken into custody. They were placed in a second unbroken van. The other one was pretty bashed up by Alan. As they were being driven back by the beat-up police officers, Hughes and his brother ripped the steel bench out from the back of the van. They used this bench basically as a battering ram to open the back doors of the van. I mean, that's pretty insane if you think about it. I mean, to rip it from the, like, bolted down. What drugs did they take? This is insane. (laughs) A whole lot. So they're able to open the back doors of the van but at this point the van is traveling at 40 miles per hour and do they jump out and they jump out and once they hit the ground they start running like they're wolverine you know once again this is pretty crazy i mean you mentioned it it's it's the drugs i mean it has to be that (laughs) right well that and probably just the fact that they're crazy their adrenaline's probably super high and they're crazy but one thing drugs can't do is make you smarter And these two men, although they didn't make their daring escape, were caught minutes later hiding behind a garage. 
They were charged with robbery, leaving the scene of a crime, destruction of property, and the assault of six police officers. When the two brothers are brought into court for their arraignment, they do have bruises over 90% of their body, though. So they were, they had their fair share of a beating, too. Oh, yeah. We just want to interject here for one second because our neighbor upstairs is having an insane dance party to what sounds like Sandstorm. I'm having the hardest time focusing on this episode, so I apologize because it is so loud. It's shaking our walls and our TV is about to fall down. Our TV is hanging on the wall right now and it's about (laughs) to fall off. So I'm trying very hard to focus. I hope it stops. (laughs) I can't wait to move out of here. I know. Oh my God. Being in quarantine with these neighbors is the worst thing that has ever happened. It's it's so terrible. I'm so sorry. (laughs) So if you hear any additional noise, it is the party above us. That we hope ends soon. What happened to social distancing? I don't know what they're doing. Because it's there. either she's running around really quickly, or there's like ten people up there. I'm, we should call the police. Yeah, probably. Yeah. After the episode's over. <laughs> Once this is over. Okay. So they are charged with a lot of things, and um, the officers who are going to deal with Billy and Holding, they've dealt with him a lot, and they say about him is that he's a thief. He's not a clever thief, but what's scary about Billy Hughes is the fact that he has an animal cunning about him, and they regarded him as being mentally ill. Alan Hughes would get two and a half years for the incident, and Billy Hughes would get three and a half years. Although the incident was terrible and they were upset, members of their own force had gotten hurt, but the Blackpool police were actually really happy that they would be rid of Billy Hughes for at least the next three years. That's pretty good. That is good. He's going to be totally out of their hair. So his three years in prison were uneventful. When it came to his behavior, his three years in prison were uneventful when it came to his behavior. But in that time, a lot had changed in Billy's life. He had gotten married to Jean and his father had passed away. By all accounts, he was really upset about the passing of his father, whom he thought he was continuously disappointing but had always stood up for him. His relationship with Jean continued to be abusive despite him being behind bars, and she continued to stay with him. So I think that goes to show the power that that Billy Hughes had over Jean, that even though he was behind bars and not there, this could have been her escape route. But she chose not to leave. She actually chose to marry him. Yeah, absolutely. Billy Hughes was released from prison in December of 1975. He went to live with his wife, stepdaughter, Tracy, and his biological daughter, Nicola, who was just about three and a half years old at that point. So Jean lived in a small apartment above a fruit shop with her friend Alice from before in the story. Now, Jean and Alice are going to live together because both women are working. And while one woman is working, the other is taking care of the children. So they're basically assisting each other as two single women with children. That's really nice. Yeah. Trying to come together to fix, you know. Just to have a support system. Support system, yeah. So now Hughes is returning now. And although at first Hughes seemed to have cleaned up his act some, he soon went back to his old ways, swindling people, drinking heavily, missing work opportunities, and resumed the physical and emotional abuse of his wife. There are accounts of Jean being attacked on the doorstep of the apartment steps. The couple that opened the fruit store below said that they always heard fighting, and Hughes 
slamming his wife's head into the floor. I mean, it's it's so insane how abusive he is. Yeah. And it's 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 never changed. It's always been I I, I think it's getting worse cuz Oh yeah, totally. Like, well, cuz he's getting away with it. Yeah. And he knows he's with a woman right now who is not going to leave. Who is actually going to continue the relationship with him. Right. Have a child with him, get married despite the fact that he's doing these things. On one occasion, Jean had to be rushed to the hospital because he had broken two of her ribs. He also continued to abuse Tracy, who still wanted to ignore him, and that still totally enraged him. Once, when she refused to answer him out of fear, he threw the eight-year-old girl towards an open fire, but she caught herself before she could hit the flames. After that, she would never leave her mother's side when Billy Hughes was around. Jean said in an interview that she gave in 1977 that Hughes was always nice to Nicola, except one time when the three-year-olds wanted to show him a toy so she woke him up from a nap. Angry because the little girl woke him up, he punched the toddler in the face, throwing her backwards. And again, he always finds himself in these really bizarre like situations. Why would you punch your three-year-old kid? It's just like there is no remorse and there's no line that he will not cross like we've mentioned before. It's just right. it's, it's actually absurd. When Jean and the children would go to the doctor, um, whether it was after the beatings or just for like normal checkups, they would always have to lie and say that, Either Tracy fell down or she fell down. And the doctor knew what was happening and did reach out to try and get Hughes some psychological evaluation, but he always refused to do so. But he did have this charm about him, you know, so people did let it pass. And I think that that's just one of the problems with Billy Hughes is that everyone let him get away with so much and he just took and took and took. Like he was always allowed to get away with this bad behavior. Yeah, it's true. For instance, the couple that lived and worked below, um, they were actually the landlords too. They, for instance, the couple that lived and worked below at the fruit shop, they were actually the landlords of the building as well. And even though Billy screwed them over with a business deal and had stolen fruit from them, they still would say that when they heard him beating his wife constantly and horrifically, that they didn't want to get involved. They actually said that it was Jean's fault because she knew how to press his buttons. Well, I don't agree with that. No, I don't think anyone would agree with that. It's ridiculous to blame someone for that type of abuse. And Hughes' daughter loved her father. Although she didn't receive the abuse that Tracy did, Nicola still witnessed horrible abuse and one intense incident herself that we're going to discuss a little bit later on. And she still lovingly spoke about her father in later interviews. She even went as far to say that the only reason that he was on the wrong side of the law was to provide for them because he loved them. And this is just such a false narrative. Right. I mean, he really didn't do anything except just be a jailbird and just always be in prison. Right. And I mean, it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't for his family. It was for his own selfish needs. Right. Exactly. During this time, Billy Hughes began having an affair. Her name was Teresa. She had worked as an office supervisor with the company he was working with. And now, it's not uncommon for Hughes to have an affair. That was actually normal, and Jean knew about all of the things that he did. But he became obsessed with this woman, and the relationship wasn't physical, but it, became, but it was emotional. 
Teresa was twice divorced with three older daughters who all doted over Hughes when he was at their house. So he became obsessed with how he was really treated when he was at this woman's house. When asked about her early relationship with Hughes, she said at first he was shy and didn't approach her, but then finally he came up and asked her out. I mean, it's just, it was weird. Like, it's like, it's not some romance novel lady. This guy was married, so it was just weird the way she romanticized it all. You know, there are people that just do that. They'll look for, they'll do anything, they'll do and say anything to fit the narrative. I know. I mean, he's also this vicious abuser with a rap sheet longer than a CVS receipt. So, like, he just was no prize. Yeah. You know? I hear you. So, she also said that he was powerful and strong and loved the outside and Johnny Cash and all of his prison songs. She's just uh, delusional. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. In fact, Hughes loved going out and drinking with Teresa and her 18-year-old daughter, Rosie, and her boyfriend, Again, he just moves to people that enable his behavior. And the four of them would always go out, but he never really had the opportunity to turn violent with them, so they never really got to experience that side of Hughes. Jean finally confronted her husband about the relationship that he was having with Teresa. She wanted him to leave her, but instead of doing so, Hughes decided to move out of the apartment with Jean and in with friends. But this does not mean that Jean was free from the abuse. Hughes, in between getting arrested for burglary and check forgery, would still visit and start fights when he would go to Jean's house. In December of 1976, Billy Hughes is going to escalate his abuse. And this time, it's not just Jean that he was going to attack. So at this point, Jean and Alice had moved out of a tiny apartment that they were sharing above the fruit shop the one that Billy was at, but then he moved out to be with Teresa. So they now live in a three-bedroom apartment with another woman and her children. So the women believed, kind of like Jean and Alice did in the beginning at the fruit shop, that the three of them could make it work together. So they all worked at the same place, but they shared different shifts. So while the one person was at work, the other person was cleaning the house and the other person was taking care of the kids. And they would do that on like rotating shifts, these three women. So they were really pooling their resources together to try and make um, being a single parent work for them financially and, you know, emotionally. Yeah, I mean, that's really great that you could have people like that to, to lean on. Right, really good support system. So these three women live in a house and... um. In December, Billy is going to visit the house. Now, visiting the house was something that um, Hughes did all of the time. And when he did, he would usually get violent with Jean. So the women never really liked him coming around. But in the middle of the night, Hughes is going to go to this three-bedroom house. And with him, he had an axe. He cut the phone wire outside of the house with the axe before he broke in. At the time, Jean and Alice were upstairs with the children in a bedroom. And the third woman, who always wanted to remain anonymous, was downstairs in the living room. She was the first woman that Hughes saw. He raped the woman while holding an axe to her the whole time. Jean, Alice, and the children heard the whole attack take place. When Hughes was finished, he bounded up the stairs and burst through the bedroom door, where everyone was hiding. He began swinging the axe around and screaming at Jean. Then he stopped. He looked at her and said, 
Do you want to see your friend cut up? And before anyone could even respond, he swung the axe and hit Alice in the head. The women and children screamed. Alice began bleeding immediately. She put her hand to her head in shock. And just as fast as his attack began, it ended. It was almost like something snapped, like he snapped out of a trance. And he dropped the axe and went to Alice and took her into the nearest bathroom and began cleaning her wound and attempting to stop the bleeding. Jean did the only thing she knew to do when Billy flew into his rages. She put on a cup of tea for him and put on his favorite record, Johnny Cash's Folsom County Blues. He calmly sat on the dining room table with the woman for two hours. They were on the edge the entire time. They thought he could snap and kill them at any moment, so they were terrified that they were going to say the wrong thing. Imagine sitting there with the man that just raped you, or hit you in the head with an axe, or had been abusing you and your innocent daughters for five years, pretending as if nothing happened. And then, without saying a word, he just got up and left. I mean, I don't even know where to begin, because there there are so many things that just happened in that, in that moment. I know. That... It's hard to address. I mean, first of all, the fact that he went the, in, in, in a rage, went to the house, cut the phone line so they couldn't call for help, because that's essentially what he was aiming for. Oh, this was premeditated. Yeah. Totally. Then he goes in there and rapes this woman with everyone right there. Like, who do you think you are? His daughter, stepdaughter, and other children upstairs, and his yeah. wife, and it's just... It's... It's... I don't even want to say the word bizarre because it doesn't even cover it. No. It's just it's just insane. It's insane. He's insane. He is insane. And we are seeing an escalation happening with him. I think that he is so used to getting exactly what he wants and that's what it it's what it is. I mean, I feel like he doesn't think he has power over his life when it comes to other men. And, like, people that are functioning in society, like, men that have jobs and, like, kind of have their shit together. And because he doesn't have power in that aspect of his life, he wants to assume and take power over people that are um, not able to defend themselves. So, like, that's why his attacks on women take place. Right. But it goes... And more of a sexual thing, I think this yeah. is a power thing. Right. The I rape. mean, I don't want to say it goes deeper, but if you think about it, the power that he doesn't have over his, the rest of his life, that's on him. Because oh, he, yeah, had, no, it's not, not he his has fault. plenty of opportunities where he could have had power in a workplace, for example, if he, he would have been able to show, up to, to show up to work. So, I mean, he could have he could have the power that he wants. It's his fault for his screw-ups his entire life. I agree with that. Because they did say that he was talented, but he just didn't. It didn't pan out because he's just irresponsible and and, and and insane. Yeah. So this is a vicious attack that took place. Oh, my God. Yeah. I'm surprised that Alice was able to come out of this. She could have easily died if he just swung the axe a little harder. I mean, he hit her in the head. Yeah. Yeah. So I this mean, it could have been a lot worse. Yeah. This could have went in a totally different direction the story would have ended here but instead we have two other events we're going to talk about after this but this is pretty bad this could be an entire episode in and of itself right police were given the full account of what had taken place that night hughes went into police custody with no incident and weeks later he had to appear in court charged officially with the crimes 
He was charged with intent to do grievous bodily harm. There was no mention of the rape in court. This is most likely um, due to the fact that the woman did not want her name to be released or have to deal with the unfortunate stigma that surrounded rape victims in the 1970s. It did seem like the third woman whose name, you know, she wanted to keep her name silent. Um, she was working out something with her husband to try and get back with him. And um, she didn't believe that he would want her back after something like that took place which is heartbreaking, but that's why I think she did not press charges. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's, yeah, I mean, I guess it's so. very sad. It is sad. Yeah, definitely. And for reasons that are unknown, the charges of harm against the women were dropped and he only had to face charges of property damage. I mean, I think that they were scared of him. They didn't want to further anger him. And Jean knows more than anyone that eventually he comes out. And she has to deal with it. Yeah. So I think that's what took place there. He was sentenced to a two-year suspended sentence. Now, for those who don't know, a suspended sentence is like a stricter form of probation. So he had to follow the conditions set by the court for the remainder of the two years. If he were to break those conditions in any manner, he could face the remainder of the two years and possibly additional time behind bars. I mean, when all is said and done, can you believe for what he did, he only got a two-year suspended sentence? I think this guy's entire um, court appearance, all these court appearances that he's had to attend. He's gotten off easily. Oh my God, yeah. He's gotten off so easily. I mean, this is insane. This guy has robbed places, breaking and entering. Multiple. Multiple times. Beating up police officers, biting them and, and shit. It's unbelievable. Rape. Um, uh, you know, I mean, uh, swinging an axe, swinging an axe and literally hitting yeah. them with it. Um, I mean, what else does this guy actually need to do to just stay in prison? Right. Well, unfortunately, what's going to take place is he commits two violent acts, and the women that he committed these acts against dropped the charges. So now that's only going to embolden him in the future. Yeah. Well, how could it not? Right. So after basically getting away with this crime, Hughes and Teresa decide that moving out of Blackpool is the best thing for them to do. They decided to move to Chesterfield, which is a little over 75 miles away from Blackpool. They were going to stay with Teresa's brother while they got settled and were able to get a place of their own. Another side note here is that although Hughes was not charged with rape and the attack on Alice, it is clear to all parties involved, Teresa included, as she was questioned by police about um, Hughes's mood before he left the house, she knew what happened that night in the house. Everything. And here she is staying. I mean... She stayed with him through all the other stuff. Well, no, this is the new one. This is the girlfriend. Oh, oh, oh my God. I'm so sorry. No, but, okay. but, well, I'm this sure. Is listen, I'm sure she knows something. There's not, uh, there's no way that you living in a town or another town away don't know what he has done. It, oh, tra- yeah. Word travels fast. I'm sure she knows something. I agree. But for her to stay with him, uh, like, I just still feel like that's weird to me. And I'm sure. I am sure that if he has done this to other women or other people, that he's doing it to her, 
but she just doesn't even realize. Yes. Like almost like it's so subtle that it goes unnoticed. Right. Well, that's his his mo is that over time is right the way he does things. Yep. Well, just like when he went to prison, the town of Blackpool and I'm assuming those three women were rejoiced at the fact that they just didn't have to see Billy Hughes anymore. I mean, how could you not be? They might as well have thrown a party when he left town. Yeah. So we're now in the summer of 1976. For those who lived in England in the summer of 76, they'll never forget that time. It was the driest and hottest period that the country has seen. A record-setting heat wave and drought plagued the country. At first, not having rain was great. But then when the heat wave and drought set in, the people of England were craving the rain. During this time, Billy lived with Teresa at her brother's house. He worked renovation jobs during the day and returned to the quiet house on a tree-lined suburban street at night. They were saving up to get a place of their own. For the first time, it seemed that Billy Hughes had a normal life. But based on past events, we know that would not last for long. Teresa's brother commented once to his sister that he thought that Hughes was a nice enough guy. But when he drank, something weird happened. It was like his eyes changed. And this is something that people have said about Hughes and will continue to say about him. When he turned violent or drank too much, it was like his eyes turned black. On the day of August 21st, 1976, Hughes went out drinking. He had been on a solo pub crawl that day and ended his day at a bar club slash club called Jingles. It was a super discotheque, like dance floor beneath a glass dome kind of place. A lot of dancing, some disco music, you know, 1976 kind of thing. It's pretty cool. So while he was there, I mean, you can imagine he's pretty inebriated at this point. If he's been day drinking all day by himself and now he's at, this is his last stop on the pub crawl. Definitely. But like a pub crawl, he made up all of them himself. <laughs> he latched on to a young couple that was at the club that night. They really didn't want their names released to the public. And some sources did release their names, some didn't. So we're just going to call them Tim and Linda. Well, Linda, who was 20 years old, and Tim, who's 21, had spent the night out dancing and enjoying themselves. Hughes began hanging around them at the bar. Now, they didn't want to spend the rest of their night with this guy. So at their first opportunity, the couple left. Right? You know, you've always been in that like awkward situation. And when you find an exit, you take that. Oh, yeah, you have to. Tim was going to walk Linda home. Now, there was a shortcut to Linda's house through Queen's Park. The couple might have wanted a little privacy, too, if you know what I mean. The park was closed, so they had to scale the wall to pass through. And as they dropped down on the other side of the wall, they heard what people had been waiting for for months. Thunder. The rain was finally coming to England. With a giddy excitement, the couple playfully ran to the back of the park and stopped to start kissing each other. It was the perfect summer night for two kids who were in love. Unfortunately, there was something stronger than a storm coming for the young couple. A little over an hour after the couple scaled the wall to get into Queen's Park, 
Tim burst through the doors of a local police station in Chesterfields. He looked dazed, and he was covered in blood. He said that he and his girlfriend were attacked at the rear of Queen's Park. He had been knocked out with a brick to the back of his head, and when he finally came to, his girlfriend was missing. He had come to the police station as fast as he could. The police searched the area in and around Queen's Park. In a public bathroom near the park, they found Linda. She was disheveled and crying. She said that she had been attacked and raped after her boyfriend had been knocked out. She said that she was taken to a nearby riverbank and sexually assaulted. The police went door to door searching for the attacker. It seemed that the man who had attacked the couple had an understanding of the park and the area around the park. A sketch was released. After the incident in the park, Hughes acted completely normal. And when the police were warning the public about their safety, he made comments to Teresa about being careful because there was a maniac out on the loose. But the sketch looked just like him. Eventually, someone tipped off police that Billy Hughes might have been the man that attacked the young couple in the park. With one look into his past history with the police, they decided that they should bring the man in for questioning. They went to Teresa's brother's house and asked to speak with Hughes, as he was under suspicion for the attack on the couple in the park a few weeks before. The officers commented that the man's lack of surprise regarding the allegations were quite interesting. He called over a shoulder for his sister's boyfriend, and Billy Hughes went with the police without a struggle. When questioned about the incident, Hughes did not hide the fact that it was him that night in the park. He said that the reality about what happened that night was different than what the couple was saying happened. The inspector who interviewed him stated that the whole interview was very strange. Hughes was distant the entire time, and his eyes were cold and penetrating. He stated that he had come upon the couple in Queens Park. In fact, Linda and Hughes lived very close to each other, and Queens Park was also a shortcut home for him as well. He said that Tim was drunk and started a fight with him. While they were fighting, he had knocked Tim out. When that happened, he began to flirt with Linda, and she agreed to go off with him and have sex with him, leaving her unconscious boyfriend behind. When they were done having sex, he just left, and then he went home and directly went to bed where his girlfriend, Teresa, lied. Yeah, that's usually what you do. Fantastic, yeah. So his story is basically, it was self-defense when he attacked Tim and he didn't rape Linda. He had consensual sex with her. So that's his defense. Hughes was arrested on charges of committing grievous bodily harm and committing rape. From the time he was formally charged and throughout his trial and afterwards, he was housed at HMP Lester, which was 55 miles south of Chesterfield. The old prison that looked more like a medieval castle was about 100 prisoners over the 218 prisoner capacity. Here, the prison officials knew of his records. They knew he was violent, of a high risk to escape, and that he had, in court, once attempted suicide in the past. But despite all of these things, he was not considered a high-risk prisoner. His time at Leicester was lonely. After this incident, all of his friends stopped communicating with him. Jean and Teresa also eventually both stopped corresponding with him. While in prison awaiting trial, 
It was noted that he had good behavior and that he participated in games with other prisoners. In order to stand trial, Hughes needed to be psychiatrically evaluated. His lawyer was present for this interview, and everything seemed to be going well. The only time Hughes got upset was when he was asked if his mother knew what he stood accused of. He, very upset, said that he had not written to her yet to let her know. The psychologist found that Hughes was not suffering from psychosis or any form of subnormality, as they put it. Because of this, he was formally charged with the offense of rape. Now, because he was charged with rape, he was supposed to be separated from the general prison population, but he never was. Now, I'm not saying that I want Billy Hughes to be safe. What I'm saying is, well, I'm just laying out some simple groundwork of the fact that there's zero communication in this prison. First, he was supposed to be a high-risk prisoner. He wasn't. Right. Then he was supposed to be taken out of Gen Pop. He wasn't. You're trying to say that there's protocols in prison that are not being that followed. are not being followed at all. Correct. Because he was supposed to be taken out of Gen Pop, he would have never been given the job that he was given in the kitchens, which he'll receive later, which is going to be instrumental in him escaping from this prison. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. At this point, Hughes had been tra- transferred from HMP Lester to the Chesterfield Court about six times. So he was really familiar with the process. On December 3rd, 1976, Hughes was headed to court again. He had begun working in the prison's kitchen in the morning. So the officers went to get him when his shift was over and take him to the courthouse. He had just finished cutting up meat and making sandwiches. He was taken with three other prisoners via van transport to the courthouse. Once the officers got to the courthouse, they received an urgent message to call the prison. When they did, they were informed that a seven and a half inch boning knife was missing from the kitchen. Hughes was searched and questioned in the cell beneath the courthouse, but no knife was ever found on his person. He denied having any knowledge of what had happened to the knife. He was then taken into court where he was informed that the charge of grievous bodily harm had been added to the previous charge of rape and that his offenses against both victims would be heard at the same trial. He had been calm and made normal conversation with the correction officers. Upon return, he was led back to his cell, which had already been searched in his absence. Later, the prisoner that Hughes was trained to that day during the transport would swear that he had been shown the knife by Hughes and that he had gotten away with stealing it. The man was like, questioned a lot of times and it seemed that his statement was inconsistent but nonetheless the knife had never been found so where else would it be the prison did not do a good job of documenting the missing knife or the searches that they conducted of the prison or the prisoners superior officers did not want to listen to the officers below them when they suggested that a more extensive search of the prison be done Like, the officers that are with these prisoners all day are telling their superior officers, we need to find this knife because somebody has it and we might die. Right. I mean, you have to, you have to protect other, you know, it's just the way it is. You have to protect other prisoners and and you have to protect the officers involved. Right. And they're saying, no, let's just forget about it. And after this whole incident, Hughes was still allowed to work in the kitchen. Yeah, that's probably not a good idea. No. After this appearance, Hughes would appear in court three more times. 
During one of those times, the prosecution suggested a Section 1 committal. Linda was still very traumatized by what had happened to her, and she didn't want to have to testify in open court. Now, if both sides agreed to this Section 1 committal, it meant that Tim and Linda would not have to appear in court, that they would be able to just write down their statements of what happened to them that night, and it would be presented during trial. Hughes's attorney told him that it would be in his best interest to agree to this because it would make him look like he had sympathy for the victims. However, he did not agree. He wanted the victims to be cross-examined and have to come to court. Because both sides did not agree, the victims would need to appear in court. So the Section 1 committal was denied. However, on December 17, 1977, just as the trial was about to begin, Hughes ran into the victims, who were visibly distraught in the hallway, and he told his lawyer that he would be okay with agreeing to the Section 1 committal. The very grateful witnesses were sent home. But as soon as they left, Hughes changed his mind and said that he actually does not agree and wanted to them to testify in person. The judge said that this would not happen as the witnesses had already been sent home. Now this, I don't want you to think is Billy Hughes having a temporary lapse and being an asshole. He was trying to stall here. He liked going back and forth between the prison and the courthouse. He was biding his time and experiencing the ride as much as he could. So like him saying no and then yes, he thought it would further delay the court and then he would have to come back and forth several more times. Right. I mean, and also it's probably he's trying to get like a better layout and uh, and a pattern of what goes down between each place. Exactly. The next two times that he came to court were uneventful, except for the fact that he found out that he wouldn't be getting bail, but he wasn't upset by this at all. And the reason we're telling you about all of these seemingly like mundane back and forth appearances is because it's just proof that Hughes is prolonging these court dates to really plan out his his route, when he can attack, when he shouldn't, when he should try to leave. So this is all something that is going to come to fruition on Wednesday, January 12th, 1977. At this point, Hughes had a large knife and the route and routine memorized. It was the day that he was going to make his escape. That day, there was very intense weather. It was snowing and hailing and making the conditions on the road terrible. There were two officers that were to escort him to the Chesterfield Courthouse that day. The officer that was to be chained to Hughes for transport was 41-year-old former boxer Ken Simmons. He had been working for the prison for three years. He lived in the same town as the prison, with his family. His colleague, that was to be the senior officer on transport, Don Sprintle, also lived with his family in the same town. Sprintle was 46 years old and had been working at HMP Lester for 14 years. As the senior officer, he was responsible for the handcuffs, keys, and paperwork. Simmons completed the field check, which many officers stated is routine and oftentimes did not lead to officers finding contraband on prisoners. He stopped when he got to Hughes's boots and did not search them. He then handcuffed his right wrist to the prisoner's left wrist. He gave the keys to Sprintle. Now the officers had no reason to suspect anything from Hughes. 
He had been nothing but a model prisoner for all previous transports, and there had been a lot of them. They believed that he was only facing the charges of rape, and they knew nothing about the assault that had taken place. The transport officers also were not informed of the violent past of Hughes. If the violence of his past and the correct charges were listed on his papers, the officers would have conducted a strip search and given a security escort in addition to the two transport officers. However, because that is not what happened, normal precautions were used, which, in the words of other officers who worked in the prison at the time, was virtually nothing. So again, it's a misstep by prison. Hughes was led out into the snow to a taxi. Because of all the transportation of prisoners that took place in England, the prisons often hired a second-party taxi service that would bring prisoners to and from the courthouse. At any given day, they hired 200 taxis a day. It's a lot. It's also crazy that they used taxis to... Well, it was cheaper than them having their own vehicles. Still crazy, though, if you think about it. In hindsight... Yeah, these people who have no training whatsoever are transporting these criminals. So you're putting the drivers at risk yes. on top of the risk of him, of a inmate fleeing. Exactly. Now, the reason that um, these men did agree to be prison transport, even though they're just taxi drivers, was because it provided steady work for them. So right. that's well, why they chose to do it. Right. Makes sense. The driver that was to take Hughes from the prison that day was 32-year-old David Reynolds. He was a married father of two who, like all other taxi drivers, took the job for the steady work. Hughes and Simmons sat in the back seat while Sprintle got into the front. It was 8.20 a.m. None of the men knew Reynolds, and once all the men were in, they got on the northbound M1 while having a conversation about fishing. They were going through Nottinghamshire when Hughes asked if he could go to the bathroom. Sprintle told him that they were not going to stop because they were getting closer to the courthouse and the weather was bad. Hughes was very adamant about the fact that he needed to stop and go to the bathroom or he was going to defecate in the car. It's pretty intense. If I was that driver, I would say, all right, go ahead, do it. (laughs) We are totally. No, I'd be like, we're totally stopping. Nope, go ahead, do it. (laughs) I'm transporting a a prisoner right now, going to court. Nope, you can go ahead and uh, poop yourself. (laughs) So, almost as if this was planned, as Hugh said he needed to stop, a sign came up that there was a rest stop nearby. Sprintle told Reynolds to pull over into the rest stop. He waited in the car as the two officers took the prisoner into the bathrooms. The officers were happy that no one else was at the rest stop. The men went into the bathroom, took the cuffs off, and allowed Hughes to go into the stall. He shut the door, but didn't lock it. They heard him go to the bathroom and use toilet paper. These are full details, guys. We we do this for you. When he came out, he was cuffed to Simmons again, and the men didn't know it as they were headed back to the car, but Hughes had used his time in the stall to take the boning knife out of his boot and put it somewhere where he would be able to easily grab it while he was in the car. After that, he was silent in the car. And just as they were approaching the exit to Chesterfield, Reynolds heard a thud, and then Sprintle, who was in the front seat with him, slumping forward. 
Sprintle thought the car had been struck from behind, but it hadn't. Hughes had taken out the boning knife and lunged forward and sliced the back of the man's neck deeply. Simmons had no time to react. As soon as the knife was withdrawn from the neck of Sprintle, he attacked Simmons. While they were fighting, Simmons's hand had been cut rather deeply. As Hughes was screaming at Sprintle to get the handcuff key out, he plunged the knife deep into the neck of Officer Simmons. Simmons was yelling that his jugular had been hit, but this did not bother Hughes one bit. He just told Reynolds to keep driving. Sprintle, while trying to hold the wound on the back of his neck, was able to get the keys to Simmons. The man with the deep cut on his hand and neck tried desperately to open the handcuffs, but he couldn't do it. Hughes stabbed him in the ribs and yelled at him to hurry up. Eventually, he commanded Sprintle to unlock the cuffs, and the man did so. As soon as the cuff was off of Hughes, he put it around Sprintle's hand. So now the two officers are cuffed together. And then he pulled the senior officer from the front seat into the back seat, and he climbed into the front. So now Hughes was sitting in the front seat, knife pointed at Reynolds' side, and the two officers were bleeding in the back. He dug the knife into Reynolds' side and told him to keep driving. Reynolds said that he was worried at this point that the men in the back seat were dead. They were bleeding so badly and they were silent. Hughes would occasionally point the knife at them and tell them to stay down and stay quiet. But that wasn't a problem, because at this point, both men were just fighting to stay conscious. Billy asked the men for their wallets and emptied all of the money from them. By this time, it was 9.15. It hadn't even been an hour since they left the prison. Simmons recalls that when he reached for his neck to try and stop the bleeding, that all he felt was a deep hole. He was nervous that he would die. Sprintle tried to make his friend calm, even though he was nervous about the same thing. Hughes directed Reynolds to drive by the nearby open moorlands. He told Reynolds to stop the car near a gate. He told the men that when the car was stopped, that they should put it in park, Reynolds should leave the keys in there, and just walk towards the gate that would lead them to, like, the open moors and that they shouldn't turn around until they heard that the car was gone. Now, one last time, Hughes is going to dig the knife into Reynolds' side just to let the man know he was serious. Reynolds stopped near a knoll that had a gate at the top. As soon as he put the car in park, he ran out of the car as fast as he could to get to the gate. The officers helped each other out of the car as fast as their bodies would allow, and they stumbled across the street as fast as they could, leaving trails of blood in the pure white snow. The men all turned at the sound of Hughes speeding away in the car. He skidded on the snow but was able to right himself again and left them all behind. And finally, all of the men took a collective breath. Reynolds rushed back to help the two officers who were in bad shape. Reynolds saw a sports car driving past them. He got up and waved the car down. The man in the car remembered the shock of seeing all the red blood on the white snow. He stopped, heart-pounding, asking the men what had happened. Reynolds explained as much as he could, as the other men could not speak at that point. The man drove to a local bar, the Red Lion, where he worked as the manager. 
He said once he got there, he would call for help, and he did. The Chesterfield police logged the phone call at 9.55 a.m. and sent a car as fast as they could to Stone Edge, where the men had been left. Even though Hughes left a path of destruction in his wake, it would be nothing compared to the devastation that he would cause over the next 55 hours. And that's where part one of the Pottery Cottage Massacre is going to end. But it's crazy because I feel like we've covered three episodes in just the first part. Well, it's because this man has caused so many atrocities. He's done so many bad things. I don't think we've ever covered someone that has done so much. I know. That's why I had to make this a two-parter because we haven't even gotten to the main crime yet. Yeah. And look at everything he's done, how many lives he's destroyed. Which kind of gets you like hyped for part two, at least for me. True crime hypes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys, we hope you enjoyed part one. And next weekend, we're going to have part two up for you. And it's exciting. I'm really happy we're going to be doing three weeks in a row with you guys. We hope you are staying home and staying safe. And... Again, we want to thank you for any reviews that you've left us. And if you want to listen to any extra episodes, we have them up on our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash truecrimecouple. Um, we have 21 episodes on there now, so we hope that you enjoy them. All right, guys. Bye, guys. Bye. <laughs>